you probably noticed, if you were paying attention at all, that I got uglier from the first time I was up on the stage until now. Uh, and that's uh, largely due um, to the Drew Brees uh, Saints jersey I'm wearing. So four or five years ago, uh, the Cowboys played the Saints, and I lost the bet. And so I'm paying up for that. And I'm paying dearly <laughs> for that because, uh, I don't know, my skin, does your skin just crawl underneath this? It's excitement. <laughs> it's excitement, okay. <laughs> well, hey, we want you to know um, this morning, and, and if you've been coming for a long time, we want to remind you that real life is for real people. And real people have real problems and real hurts and real fears and real struggles and hang-ups, and they have real families. Many of you are new to Real Life Church, and we're excited to have you. Some of you have never been to church before until you started coming to Real Life, and it's so excited that you would um, trust us as you begin that spiritual journey. And there's even some of you who have been to church in the past, you've been to other churches in the past, and while you were there, you, for whatever reason, you felt judgment or condemnation or you were hurt while you were there. And so church um, and the idea of going to church has just been a struggle. And, and I want you to know that we are um, so honored that you would be here and that you would trust us with that. And so I want to be real clear as we start off this morning. We as a church family are glad that you are here. Whatever those hang-ups or baggage or problems or challenges are, we believe that Jesus is the answer and that the best place for you to be is in church. We want to see your life transformed, the way that God has transformed our lives, and, and we want to see your children grow to know and to love and to look more like Jesus. We want to fill the rooms that we have available with children who are learning about Jesus on their level because you and your children matter to us. And so we're just very glad that you came today. In part because um, we love families. Love families. Um, but as we learned last Sunday, if you remember, families are difficult, right? Like you don't always have everybody in the same family. Not everybody is blessed like um, my family until Easton came along. We were all Cowboys fans. And life was good. And then a Chiefs fan came into the family. Okay, I'll, I'm going to confess this. You know, the Cowboys aren't playing, and so I, I will root for the Chiefs today. Um, I'm sorry, Adam, but the 49ers are just uh, not what I was going to say. Um, okay, Adam is a good example. Family is tough. This is difficult. It's difficult to get through. We, we have, look, we have um, work events that we have and things to do with the house, and we've got cars that need to be worked on and schedules that need to be kept, and, and there's a ton of things in our lives that just drain us and make like, life difficult instead of dreamy like it is on the movies, right? In the movies, everything always works out but that's not what happens in real life. And so we want to live our best life, but most of us are just trying to survive our only life. And, and I think at, at kind of the center of, of our lives, for most of us anyway, is work. There's always something 
that needs to get done. G.E. Miller, in an article he wrote for 20-something Finance, said this, Americans work more than any other industrial nation in the world. We have less time off, more hours in the office, and less vacation time. And, and you know that because chances are in your life you've kind of lived that same way and, and you've seen the negative consequences of that for your health. You've got somebody that you're close to or maybe you yourself that because of the schedule and the demands of work or the demands of, of your home, you've battled physical challenges related to stress. Maybe you or somebody you know has dealt with depression or anxiety and, and maybe because of that stress in life and that busy work schedule and home schedule and just life, that you've, you've had to try to deal with that somehow, and so you've self-medicated just to get through the day or to get through the week. Now, this busy lifestyle that, that we in America um, live all the time slams right into the Bible's idea of an intentional weekly time of rest. So whether you're a follower of Jesus today or a manager or employee, you've never been to church, maybe you're a parent or a single person, most of us live unbalanced lives. And we know it. And like that's the crazy thing. We know that we're kind of living life at a breakneck speed, that we've got all these things going on and we're trying just to juggle life all the time and we're spinning those plates like in the circus when you were a kid. We're trying to keep everything going. We know that we're stretched too thin, but then there's always more to do. And so we just have to keep spinning those plates. And so let's be honest for a second. We spend, as in general, as a society, we spend too much time doing things that in the long run aren't going to matter much. And we spend far too little time on those things that will. And so for many of in our lives, vacation time goes unused. Family time is underutilized. And, and worship is neglected or underprioritized in our lives because of this hectic lifestyle that we live. Our lives and, and then our society end up unbalanced. Now the key to, to functional rhythm in your life, like in every other area, is to follow the pattern that God gives you in his word. And embedded in that word is a way of doing life that involves work and rest. Now in the Bible, God calls that time of rest Sabbath. And Sabbath gives balance to our lives. It gives meaning to our time. It helps us develop a rhythm that we can sustain and then that actually sustains us. When the Bible spells out how we should give, how we should live, how we should love, it often doesn't make sense to us. Like, like we, we read those things and we go, man, it sounds really good, but it just doesn't seem like it's going to work. How could giving what we have away actually result in us having more? How could, um, how could living as God directs actually give us a more fulfilled and fuller life? How could loving one person for all of your life actually lead to a more fulfilling love life? The Bible sometimes when it tells us how we're to live is difficult for us to get our heads around because it's completely opposite of what we're told, what we're taught, and often what we've tried. And I think Jesus experienced this, but, but really he experienced on the other side of the coin, right? Everything Jesus did was right. In fact, he says, I only do what the Father does. And so everything that Jesus did was always right 
all the time. And like, I can't fathom that, right? Like doing the right thing all the time just seems like totally out of certainly my league. But Jesus had it down. I'm like, he's God. And so he never made a mistake. He always did the right thing. And yet, even though Jesus did it all right all the time, he was constantly berated by those around him for doing it wrong. We're going to look today in Mark chapter 2, at the very end of the chapter, uh, beginning in verse 23. So you can follow along on the screen or on your mobile device. You can uh, go to reallifecc.us, click on the My Message Notes link, and all of the points and all of the things that you're going to need are there, including some questions that you can answer, and you can email yourself that stuff uh, after the the service is over. Um, But however you engage in God's Word, we encourage you to do that um, today. In Mark chapter 2... Mark is sharing just part of the life and ministry of Jesus. And so what he does in that chapter is he just lists, um, really I think it's four or five encounters that Jesus has with the religious leaders of his day. And in every one of those encounters, Jesus either does something that the religious leaders say is wrong, like you're sinning, you're breaking the law. Um, He went and had a meal with tax collectors. And so the religious leaders said, you're sinning because you're eating with a sinner, and so you're not supposed to do that. Um, And so there's just this record of of Jesus either doing something that the religious leaders said was a sin or wrong, or he didn't do something, and then they accused him of, of being wrong then as well. So whatever Jesus did, he was wrong. And we come down to the end of Mark chapter 2, this just list of things that people thought Jesus was doing wrong, and we find this last one. One Sabbath, that's the day of rest, remember we just mentioned that, one Sabbath Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along, and as they did, they began to pick some heads of of grain. And Maybe you've done that, we live in Kansas where there's lots of grain around, and and, uh, I'm from Oregon, we don't have that kind of thing on the hills in Oregon, but I've done this before. Grab a few heads of grain, you thresh them a little bit in your hand, you get the grains out. Um, And I probably didn't eat them at the right time. Maybe some of you Kansas people know when the right time to eat those things are. Um, They probably could like fill you up, but they are nasty. Uh, If you just eat that little grain of uh, wheat or whatever right out of the, the head. So the Pharisees said to him, why are your disciples, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the head priest, remember these were the priests who were talking to Jesus, Abiathar, or David entered the house of God and he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Now, the reason that Jesus brought David up is because the Jewish people held David as like a pretty close to God. In fact, many of them thought that he was probably going to be the promised Messiah. And so they didn't want to talk about the times that David messed up very often. They wanted to look at David like every good thing he ever did. Maybe you've got an older brother or sister. And you get to school, and your teacher said, oh, you're related to them, or whatever. And, and like, you're never going to live up. But kind of that's how they looked at David. Like, everything he did was right. And so Jesus brings up David to kind of show them that, look, even this guy that you think did everything right broke your law. He then said to them, the Sabbath, though, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he ended it this beautiful way. I think God could uh, end every argument that we have with him this way. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
I'm in charge no matter what. Like, I'm the guy who created it and made it, and so your arguments don't hold any weight. Well, first, you've got to understand that the Sabbath was one of the most important concepts for the Jewish people. You read through the Old Testament, you'll see this pretty quickly, that the Sabbath was incredibly important. And part of the reason that it was important was that it had its roots in creation. Right? All the way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, we're told that the, it, God created the world in six days, right? He made all of this material universe, and on each day, he created something else, <coughs> excuse me, in this material universe. He created plants on one day, and animals, and the sun, and the moon, the land, and the trees, and, and he put the fish in the sea, and he made dinosaurs, and, and then finally on the sixth day, he created man. But on the seventh day, God didn't create anything material. In fact, on the seventh day, Genesis says that God rested. And so let me just ask you this um, question. And you don't have to answer it because I don't want to embarrass anybody. You can just like listen because probably you're going to go, oh yeah, that makes sense. All right. Do you really think that, the, that God, the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe, got tired after creation and needed a breather? Because that's how we kind of read that in, in Genesis, right? That God worked so hard on the first six days of creation. It was so difficult for him to create all the animals and to create man. It was like this pinnacle creation. And he was just exhausted and had to take a day off. That is not the case at all. And because of that, we know that, that God is all-powerful, right? He'll never run out of power, so he never gets tired. And because of that, we know that God did not institute the Sabbath for himself. God didn't create the Sabbath for himself. He didn't get to the end of creation and go, man, I'm tired. I better create a day where we can just rest, because if I'm tired, like they're going to be tired, right? That wasn't the case at all. So when the disciples threshed grain in their hands to eat, it was considered work. And that work was condemned to do on the Sabbath because God had said, don't do any work on the Sabbath. However, threshing a few heads of grain in your hand was not considered work by God. It was considered work by the religious leaders. The religious leaders who created this um, detailed and exhausted list of what work meant and what was prohibited on the Sabbath. So if we go back uh, into Genesis and into Exodus and we read what God says about the Sabbath, we read that God said that the Sabbath was to be honored and it was to be kept holy and that we were to do no regular work. That was pretty much the extent of God's law. Like God is not a really wordy person. And so he said, look, honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy, do no regular work. That was pretty much it. But the religious leaders weren't happy with that. Like They were constantly creating more rules and regulations to keep people from breaking the rules and regulations that God had. And so um, in, in some extra-biblical work, if you go back and, and read um, the Jewish uh, uh, book where it's um, kind of the Jewish religious leader law and the oral tradition, you'll find there's about 24 chapters that relate specifically to the Sabbath and how we're to keep it. Let me give you a few examples of some of the things that they said were laws, according to the religious leaders, to keep you from breaking 
the Sabbath. And, and we'll see if any of us have broken any of these rules uh, on the Sabbath. Um, the, the first, uh, or one of the rules was this. No one can carry a load heavier than a dried fig. You ever carried a dried fig? <laughs> Doesn't weigh very much. <laughs> you could carry a wet fig. Uh, and it wouldn't weigh very much. Right? It's not very much. Uh, here's another one. Um, nothing larger than an olive can be eaten. Now, I don't know. Maybe in Israel they grow really big olives, but probably not. <laughs> and so nothing bigger than an olive can be eaten. It, it gets better. Um, throwing an object into the air with one hand and catching it with the other, um, well, that's playtime, and you can't do that on the Sabbath. That's in the those rules and regulations. Uh, you can't take a bath on the Sabbath because some water might spill out and while you're wiping up the water, you might accidentally clean the floor and that would be work and you can't do that on the Sabbath. Uh, a woman was not allowed to look into a mirror lest they be tempted to pluck a gray hair. Can't make this stuff up, people. Um, chairs. The religious leaders said that you couldn't move a chair Probably because, I don't know, maybe they were heavier back then. You couldn't move a chair. And I, this, is just so, this is just so crazy. You couldn't move a chair because if you did, when you dragged the legs of the chair, um, it might make a rut in the ground, and that would be plowing <laughs> the field. Like, <laughs> Okay, ridiculous, right? Um, the, here's, a, here's a good one. If you were ill on the Sabbath, like if you got sick on the Sabbath, well, God help you, because only enough treatment could be given to keep the ill person alive. It gets you right on the edge of death. Like, I, like if you're back in, in Israel, I don't know, a couple thousand years before Jesus comes along, you're probably on death's door anyway all the time. But on the Sabbath, like, oh, we can't treat you because there's too much work. Well, just to be clear, the disciples were doing what was unlawful according to the extra rules that the religious leaders had created to keep people from breaking the actual rule, the Sabbath. But they were not guilty of breaking God's law to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And it was a practice of the religious leaders in, in, in Bible college and stuff, and scholar stuff, they call it hedging the gospel. And so what it meant was that um, if you had a rule, if God made a rule, and he said, like, don't murder. Well, then the religious leaders would come along and they'd build a whole bunch of rules way out here, far away from ever murdering somebody. And they would say, look, if you don't break any of these rules, you'll never be guilty of breaking the big one. And so they hedged, they put a hedge around each of the laws of God to keep people from breaking those rules. Now, they thought it was a good idea. But can you imagine being a Jew and having to obey not just like the Ten Commandments, but the 400 and some other laws that the religious leaders made about that. That sounds like work to me. And so Jesus' response to the religious leaders is perfect. The Sabbath was made for man's benefit, not man's for the Sabbath's benefit. And anyway, he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I created it. I gave it to you. I made it. And so I get to make the rules about it. Now, uh, to be fair, we could get completely bogged down talking about the Sabbath. There are still those today who believe that the law of the Sabbath is in effect, even today, 
and even for believers uh, and followers of Jesus. And so there would be some who would say that by meeting this morning to have church, we are all guilty of breaking the Sabbath, and so we are not true Christians. There are those who would say that. Now, I think I've got some pretty good arguments about why that's not the case, but there's still those who believe that. There is, in certain circles, a lot of disagreement about the Sabbath. But I'm going to make it real easy today. Without getting stuck in the weeds, um, we're going to make it real easy. And, and let me just say, if you've got questions, more questions about it, or somebody maybe told you something about it somewhere along the line, and you're, like, confused, um, just get me later, email me or whatever, and we'll get it sorted out. See, I think the point of the Sabbath is um, pretty simple. And it's this, you can't get to kingdom come by chasing kingdom current. You can't get to kingdom come by chasing kingdom current. It just occurred to me that you Chiefs fans might be a little excited about that. <laughs> Chiefs, kingdom, whatever, okay. Today might not be your day. I don't know, I just don't get excited. See, I think God wanted humanity to understand that we're not going to get to God through the principles and practices and politics of this world, of this kingdom. And so he instituted the Sabbath to help us understand this concept, and he presented it to us in three distinct yet incredibly linked ways. And so there's actually three different Sabbaths that are supposed to be followed um, by the Jewish people. The first one is the weekly Sabbath. Now, for the Jews, Saturday was the Sabbath. It was the seventh day of the week, and it was the final day of the week. And so every Saturday, um, they would take off. Now, it gets really um, interesting when you go back and look at this, because for the Jew, Saturday actually began at sundown on Friday. So from about 6 o'clock in the evening on Friday... Until about 6 o'clock in the evening on Saturday, that was their Sabbath. So it passed kind of over two days. I had a friend who um, a few years ago flew out to the Holy Land. He was going on a Holy Land tour, one of the things on my bucket list to do. And uh, he had gotten to New York, and they were waiting for their plane, but there was a storm. And so the plane couldn't take off, and it was supposed to leave Friday morning, but because of the storm, it couldn't leave. Well, by the time the storm cleared, it was Friday evening, and it was too close for the plane to take off to 6 o'clock. And so they had to not just wait all day Friday for their plane, but because it was the Sabbath, the plane didn't leave until Saturday after 6. So they were put up by their airline a whole other night to wait until it was after the Sabbath. See, even today, Jewish people observe the Sabbath. My friend said that when he got to Israel, if you're walking around there um, on Friday afternoon, everything begins to shut down. People begin making food. They, they typically have their families over. They have big get-togethers. Uh, and, and every Friday from about 6 p.m. until Saturday at 6 p.m., everything closes. Still today. They had the weekly Sabbath, but they also had um, a yearly Sabbath. So the Sabbath day was celebrated on the seventh day, every seventh day of the week, and then every seventh year there was a yearly Sabbath. Every seven years the Israelites were not to plant or harvest 
for that entire year. Now, this is an agrarian society, right? This is what they did. They planted, they harvested, almost everybody had some kind of field that they were planting things in and growing. It was their industry, and they would sell that stuff, and they would keep some to provide for them for food. They would use it to trade and barter. That was their currency. That was how they survived. But every seventh year, they were to let the ground go fallow. They were not to sow anything. Now, they could eat anything that grew up voluntarily that year, but they couldn't sow, they couldn't weed, they couldn't tend the vines. They had to just let everything be still. And so on the sixth year, you can imagine how hard they worked to get ready for that seventh year. Like, we don't know what's going to happen, so we better make sure we have enough. That would be a really intense year, I would think. If you and I had to do that in our lives today, we know, okay, you've got 2020, But in 2021, you can't work. Now, there might be a few of us who could do that, but most of us could not. Like, we'd be freaking out. How do I pay my bills and save enough to pay all my bills next year and still maintain any kind of semblance to the life I have? It'd be very difficult. So in that seven year, they didn't do anything. They didn't sell anything. They didn't barter anything. They didn't grow anything. And then on the eighth year, or really the first year again, They could sow, and then God said that that harvest in that first year or that eighth year would be plentiful and would bless them for um, their faithfulness in that. So they had the yearly Sabbath, they had the daily Sabbath, and then they had what they called a Jubilee Sabbath. So again, it's all based on seven. Seven days of the week, seven years, and then seven times seven is 49. So every 49th year, the Israelites were not only to not work the land, But they were to return any land they had purchased to its original Jewish owner. Any servant that was working for them was to be set free. And any debt owed to them was to be forgiven. Now, I'm kind of partial to the Jubilee year. I think that maybe our credit card companies and mortgage companies should begin to follow that. And every 49th year, you just get it all back. Just whatever. We're just going to cancel it. I think that would be awesome. Well, you can imagine that that was a very, very difficult thing for the Jewish people to do, especially those who maybe owned land and maybe had some people that worked for them. The Jews would often sell their land or themselves if they were in tough financial positions. But then when the year of Jubilee came, that was all returned or freed. So I want to break this down just a little bit further because I think there's um, some pretty impressive connections here. The weekly Sabbath was about rest from daily duties. What we would maybe call that personal work. Now, don't think about this too much, okay? Because the Jews had all of these rules about the Sabbath, right? About how you weren't supposed to work. But many of those people had children. How many of you could not work while you have children living at home? Like we have one and he's 22 and it's work. We got to feed him, you know, I mean, that's like, there's a lot of preparation that would go into that. And so the weekly Sabbath was about rest from daily duties or personal work. The yearly Sabbath was about rest from industry, what we might call commercial work. So they were um, sowing the ground and reaping and harvesting so that they could take that, they could provide for them themselves, their family, and then they could sell that or use it for other things. And then the Jubilee year was about providing rest by releasing debt 
or what we might call relational work. So, so catch this. The weekly Sabbath was about stepping back from the daily grind. The yearly Sabbath was about stepping back from greed, right? If you had to take a year off, that would make you not greedy. And the Jubilee year was about extending grace. Those are all good things, right? Those are all things that help us keep our eyes on the Lord of the Sabbath. Those are all things that help us trust a God when he says things that we think are really difficult to follow. In each case, the natural order of things was replaced by a spiritual substitute that brought rest to yourself or provided it to others. I think God was trying to teach the people that they didn't have to rely on the work of their hands, their entrepreneurship, or their financial savvy. And, and here's why this is important. In fact, this is our bottom line today. Rest is not found in gaining the material things of this life, but in gaining the immaterial things that make up a good life. So we talk about taking a Sabbath rest, we're talking about gaining immaterial things that make for a good life. If you're burning out, maybe today you're like uh, at the end of your road. Maybe you've burnt out already. It's probably because while you've given out, you haven't taken the time to put anything back in. And, and look, you can't put material things in. Material things don't offer rest. Only the immaterial can offer rest. And here's how I know that I can say that. If material things really offered us the kind of rest that refreshes us and rejuvenates us, then every day we'd be refreshed and rejuvenated. Because we have material things. We've got more material things than anybody else in the history of the world. But we come to church worn out from the week. We say things like, I need to be refreshed, or, or I need a fill-up. I'm so glad I, I was here because I was just drained. Or, or we say, things, I need to regain some, some focus or perspective. And we say those things because the material world drains us. But reconnecting with God fills us up. The Sabbath was made for man. God created us. He knows what it takes, uh, what the world takes out of us, and he knows what it takes to refill our tank. The religious leaders turned the Sabbath into a day of fear and work by creating all of these extra rules and regulations for the people to obey. But I think God just wanted his people to realize that the things that this world, the things of this world can't provide the things that we really need to make it in this world. The things of this world can't provide the things we really need to make it in this world. So Sabbath isn't a law meant to restrict us. It's a lesson meant to refresh us. I think, God, I think that's what God was doing back in creation. He was setting an example. He was giving us a lesson for how we might live our lives, that we might be refreshed, that we might be rested, that we might understand what it is to trust God and to just enjoy the immaterial things that he's given. God started this incredible story, the Bible, out by saying that he rested, but not for himself because he doesn't need rest. He was talking about rest for us. 
And just like recognizing that the material things of this world don't provide the meaningful things that you and I need, God wanted us to know by his Sabbath example that the best parts of the spiritual can't be gained through the material. The best parts of the spiritual can't be gained through material. One day Jesus is going to come back and heaven is going to be open and heaven and earth are going to be united. And, 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 and when the people of God will finally and fully enter the rest that God spoke of in Genesis chapter 2. And you can't get there through material things like money or power or position. You can't work your way to heaven. The rest of God can't be found through the work of man. That's why the Sabbath is what the Sabbath is telling us. And, it, and it really, the Sabbath idea, it doesn't make sense otherwise. God wanted his people to know that they could trust him above the work of their hands. They could trust him to provide for them if they didn't work for a day. And that he'd sustain them if they didn't work for a year. And that he would be gracious to them when they were gracious and merciful to others. You can't earn your way to heaven. You can't work for it. You can't purchase it. And you can't force your way in. The rest that God promises, it isn't about your work. It's about Jesus' work. And so we come together on Sunday to worship, to be refreshed by the word and to be refreshed by the singing and the relationships that, that we have. And we, we come in and we see people maybe we haven't seen all week. And to be reminded that our trust is best placed with God in Jesus, not in our livelihood or in our own lives. I think really we would all be better off if we could take a day off, a day to worship together, a day to spend time together, a day to remember that, that God is the one who provides, not us. And maybe you can make Sunday your Sabbath. The day you remember that it's not your work that sustains you, but it's his work. And that all the material increase you could gain won't make your life meaningful. I don't know of any story where somebody gets to the end of their life and says, I wish I would have worked more. I wish I would have had more. I wish I would have bought more. But so many get to the end and say, there were so much more meaningful things that I should have invested my time in. Look, if you don't learn to rest in Jesus, in his grace and in his contentment, you're going to waste your life on material products that don't bring that immaterial peace and purpose that you've been looking for. Now I get it. You're busy. Right? We all are. There's things to do and there's dishes to be done and diapers to be changed and there's work that has to be done. You come home from one job and you got to work on the house and you got to fix the car and you got to take the trash out. And there's always more things to do. There's always something to do that you think you'll never get done. But guess what? You will never accomplish everything in your life. Now, I'm sorry to burst your bubble if you thought you could. But you will never accomplish everything in your life, but you can enjoy a meaningful life. There will, there will always be more to do 
but there will not always be more of you. Think about that. There's always going to be more to do. But there may not always be more of you. And so I just want to encourage you, okay? Here's the challenge this week. Take time to rest in Jesus. Take time to to have a day off, to take a vacation, to to maybe make church a priority. And, and, And going to the temple and worshiping was a big part of the Sabbath because that was one of the ways that they're refreshed instead of worn out. Spend time with friends. Work to make a life, not just a living. Let's pray. God, I thank you for all that you have given And I thank you for your word. Your word that that even though sometimes it's difficult, and even though sometimes we think, man, if I follow what God is saying, I I won't have enough. I won't be enough. Like it just can't work out. Like the math doesn't add up so often when we use our math. God, thank you for giving us your word that very clearly and very simply tells us how to live. And if we would just trust you, trust your word in, in, in the way that we live, the way that we deal with others, the way that we respond to you, the way that we live our lives, that our lives would actually be better and not worse. So often we get that confused, God, and we think that you're trying to take things away from us when in, in reality you're always trying to give us more. And so help us, Father, to to learn to just trust you. And that even in times like the Sabbath, when we we look at our lives and we go, that's got too much stuff to do, that we would take time to rest. That we would take time to to be with your people, to be with our families and, and, and friends, to encourage one another and to share life together. Because, God, it's, it's really those immaterial things that refresh us. It's time spent with you and, and spent with our, our loved ones, spent with our friends. It's, it's worship, it's, it's gathering, it's giving, it's serving. It's all of those things that seem like they would take more from us. But in your economy, they always give more to us. So, God, help us to learn to rest in you. And one day we're going to be able to enter that Sabbath rest that you talked about in Genesis. Because one day Jesus is coming back. And when that day comes, there won't be any more work to do. We're not going to be working to try and get in. We're not going to be working to to, to appeal to you somehow. We're just going to be able to rest in you. And we're going to be able to live out Sabbath existence the rest of eternity. God, we thank you for your word and for loving us and for giving us this encouragement. As we follow this rule, God, and we follow this law and we take time to rest in you, 2020 will be a much better year. In Jesus' name.